at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F*** that. You don't got time for that. All right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Nick Springer on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is KLWN, Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. Hey, should be a fun one today. We're going to be joined by Josh Briscoe at 405. Talk some Chiefs, offseason, NFL drafts coming up in like a month in Kansas City. We're going to be joined by Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. Talk a little Final Four KU hoops. Got some uh, coaches audio from KU football. And we also will get to Nick's favorite segment, the KU Mailbag. Brought to you by Nick Springer. If you still... If you have the opportunity, ask more questions. That is 340. We will uh, preview the KU women's basketball game coming up at 5 o'clock. They're taking on Washington in the Fab Four. That one you can hear on KLWN pregame 615 tip-off at 630. You can also go on out to the game with Allen Fieldhouse. Uh, They're selling online like $15 tickets for the game. You can get $20 reserve tickets, $15 GA tickets, and then I know youth tickets uh, are a lot cheaper. I, I forget the exact cost, so I'm not going to say it, but I know it's cheaper. Uh, we do have some breaking news to get to, though, off the top of the show today. MJ Rice. Huge news. MJ Rice is transferring. Yeah, this one's kind of a bummer, honestly. I, yeah. I kind of hope. I kind of hoped that MJ would stick around, but all right, let's write, let's do this real quick. Okay, rank okay. the because he's now the fifth KU player to transfer out of the program, yes. and I don't know that it's that much of a shock. We've definitely been yeah, alluding it's, to that it's possible. Yeah, but, but I do agree with you. Um, so if you were to rank one okay. through five, number one being the player you would be most disappointed left the program. Number five, the player you feel like they can most easily overcome his loss. How would you rank all their five transfers? Okay, one MJ Rice. I agree with you there. Two, Joe, I guess. Three, Bobby. Okay. Four, Cam Martin. Five, Zach Clements. Wow, you're really out on Zach Clements. <laughs> uh, the only thing I would do differently is I would probably switch Zach and Cam. I do think, just in a vacuum, okay. I might have Zach two or three on the list. The reason you for would- a Bill Self-specific system... Yeah, and the just reason wasn't work. you would put Cam last is because he only had one year left anyways. Yeah. Whereas the other guy Yeah, exactly, where Clements has multiple exactly, years, Exactly, right? yeah. So that's the reason why. Yeah. But I like I think that hypothetically if Cam came back, I feel like there's more he might have had the opportunity to add, I guess. But also we never really got to see him play, so it's like we don't really know. Sure. You know. Yeah, what if he I, I mean he had an offer from like Texas before he picked Kansas. What if he goes to another Big 12 school and, and ends up playing well, you know? What if he goes to... Yeah, then uh, he'd be kind of annoyed. I, I, I know there's been a rumor circulating around. I don't know if this is just from like a standpoint of um, Oklahoma had a stretch five with Tanner Groves. What about Cam Martin? I don't know. But like, what if that happened, right? And what, what if he just like balled out against okay. KU? That would make you feel differently. Uh, nonetheless, though... It seems like some KU guys do like doing that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bryce Thompson. Bryce Thompson. Right? Yeah. 
Is that the only one though? Oh, maybe it is. <laughs> I thought there was another. Because most of them don't end up like playing against KU. It has to be like yeah, the perfect true. situation. And yeah. and until recently, kids usually didn't transfer in conference. Uh, but anyway, uh, the point is uh, the reason we both put MJ Rice number one on that list, I think, is pretty clear. It's the the tantalizing potential. Yes, things did not work out this year. Let's be no. clear with that. He did never. He never cracked the rotation. There were a few games where he had moments. Texas game at home. Uh, there were a few games where he had like good overall stats and games in the non-con against Texas Southern against yeah. North Dakota State. Yeah, but it never it never packed on to each other. It never led to an arrow pointed forward that this guy was going to become a bigger part of the team. That he was going to angle on for more minutes when you connected games together. There were just a few small fleeting moments here or there, and it just never worked out. Which was unfortunate because when you looked at what KU needed this past season, having another guy who was a really good athlete, having another guy who was a wing to maybe spell some minutes from Kevin when he was injured and from a freshman Grady Dick and from Jalen Wilson who was having to do so much, having a guy who could add to like just the dunking of a team, like having that athleticism matters. And having a guy who could potentially create his own shot for you and do it off the bench. Both those things that KU did not have enough of this year, he was an immediate answer for some of those things, and it never came around to happening, which was unfortunate. Yeah, and I think the the other reason why I would put MJ number one on that little list we just made is because look at what we expect KU's returners to be at this point. No wings, right? So there was going there was more than likely going to be an opportunity for MJ Rice to become like maybe a starter for this upcoming season. Right, I mean, no Jalen Wilson, no Kevin McCuller, probably no Grady Dick. There's your three starting wings from last season, and if you're MJ Rice, that gives you one of basically three chances essentially to try to earn one of those starting positions. Yeah, I mean, so, you're, you're talking about in that point a competition between like you, Chris Johnson, Jamari McDowell, Marcus Adams and then for wing whatever minutes. maybe transfer yeah whatever transfer additions they pick up. And but certainly you'd have a leg up on those other guys. You sure, would think. you had a year in the program. Yeah. Now, obviously, it didn't go well, so it'd be easy to say. Like a lot of times, I, I think we, we see this all the time in sports. Uh, the new shiny object is more appealing than the thing that you already know the answer to. But think about this. MJ Rice was ranked 32nd. But we, didn't, we didn't know the answer. No, we MJ didn't. Rice. But MJ we never, Rice we never saw was, it. was ranked 32nd on the 24-7 sports composite. Coming into last year, right? Okay. And he's now had a year in the program, or at least he did before now leaving the program. Every recruit you are bringing on this next year in the 24-7 composite is ranked lower than what MJ Rice was. Uh, Marcus Adams is 36th. Chris Johnson's below that. Jamari McDowell below that. Except for El Marco Jackson, who played in the uh, McDonald's All-American game last night. Um, so, you're talking about guys that are ranked lower than him and would not have a year in the program. Of course, he could easily have a leg up on those guys and that you could see him having that. And And I think above all, it's always hard to give up on guys that like I don't I don't know that MJ Rice will ever be a first round pick or ever an NBA guy. But potentially, if it hits with MJ Rice, you were talking about a six five ultra athletic, well built wing that if things did work out for him and he, he had a an All-American level season, or he had an All-Conference level season, you can see the path to that guy being an NBA draft pick. Yes. And whatever transfers you're going to bring into the program, they might end up being better players for you than MJ Rice. Very well could. So the scholarship can go to but good use. But if they're transferring in, they're probably not NBA caliber Correct. players. And that's not the be-all end-all. This is college basketball, so you want the guys that are producing. But the point is, if you did get MJ Rice to a point where he was producing – 
it would have been hard to turn away from that type of talent. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's just a tale of, you know, a little bit of disappointment, right? And this is a guy that it sounds like maybe Bill Self was hoping that he would stick around and the rest of the staff was hoping he would stick around. But also at the same time, from his, from his perspective, like, you want to be able to secure playing time. And, yeah, you would have had more opportunities this year, but maybe the, the fracture there or the the lack of development from your freshman season carries over and then you're stuck again as somebody who's getting played sparingly. And that's obviously not what a guy like MJ Rice wants to be. So it's totally understandable. You know, he wants to go somewhere where he can really more guarantee that he's going to have a chance to, to showcase his abilities. And and I hope he does. hope he does because he's definitely a great athlete and he certainly has the potential, as you alluded to, of, of being a really explosive scorer and a great player. And it's it's... Sad that it didn't work out at Kansas, but now again, you, you go back to the discussion we've had about the transfer situation for KU, where the more guys that transfer out for Kansas, the more pressure you're putting on the staff to really hit on the guys you're bringing in and also your freshman class. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, you just have more that you have to accomplish in the portal, which can be fine. And, and yeah, I think so now that, you're looking at probably what three or four portal guys. Yeah. So I, I do think as much as you know, even if Bill Self and the staff did want MJ back, I also don't think it's something where it's like. To I mean, me, if you have to try to convince a guy to come back, it's like at that point. It's yeah, like, I, I, eh. it's it's clearly not the end of the world because as as much as the potential was there and he could have ended up being a starter on next year's team, who knows? I don't know that he would be projected to either. Um, to me, this one is is even a little bit more like. Less than when Bryce Thompson transferred. When Bryce Thompson transferred, there were people like almost assuming he was going to work his way into the starting lineup of the next season, which ended up being KU's title-winning year. Now, I don't think that would have ended up happening because part of that was based on the idea that I remember going into that offseason, Christian Brown had a tough final like month and a half of his uh, sophomore season at KU, and people were like, well, maybe Bryce Thompson usurps him. And uh, Christian Brown ended up coming back the next year and, and being a first-round pick and, and leading KU to a title. So I don't know if it would have ended up happening, but at least with that guy, it was like pretty clear he was going to be in the rotation and may end up being a starter. There's definitely a lot more questions. There right there now. are. Yeah. And I think for KU, you're, you're almost viewing it as, like, yes, MJ's potential is super high, but what if it takes MJ two years to get to that potential? What if it takes his next stop, plays his first year, and he's kind of rough up and down, and then by year two at his new stop is the year that things start to come together. Well, think about it this way. KU this year, and this is kind of the new age in the transfer portal, is going to go out and use that scholarship with MJ Rice and bring on somebody who is probably ready-made right now to contribute to the team at a higher level you than hope. MJ Rice probably would be this season. Yes, yeah, you're, you, right. You you're right. You hope. Yeah. Um, and then, guess what? That guy probably is going to be gone after a year because a lot of times these guys are one-year transfers. And guess what? You just do it all over again. You bring in another guy who is who is ready-made to contribute right away. Which that probably maybe irks some more old-school type people uh, that like to see you know older teams. And as we highlighted on yesterday's show, the teams that are in the Final Four and the Elite Eight this year, they do have a lot of transfers on them. But they also, for the most part, all of them have a couple, two or three or even four guys that are program pillar players. Mm -hmm. And so the good news for KU is they're going to have that. They're going to have that next year. They're going to have KJ and Dewan Harris for sure as sort of your two main pillar guys. And then Ernest, we expect to increase, have an increased role as well, but we're not really sure. So, and I think for MJ Rice, like what you were alluding to with the, the potential and like 
some of the questions is some of those questions for Kansas, they might not get answered for a while, right? Like depending on what happens in the portal, depending on how things play out with the freshmen, like some of those questions that you're looking about, like what the rotation look like. I mean, we're talking like into a couple of months before the season where you might still have questions there. And maybe in MJ Rice's situation, he didn't want to have those questions. He wanted to be able to go somewhere and say, and know for sure, like right now, this is what my role is going to be in 2023. Yeah. Because the, you you can't project that right now for KU because, first of all, they don't have half their team, either from the portal or, or, or incoming freshmen, right? Yeah. I, I think it's understandable kind of from both sides. Now, now at this point, like what happens from here, uh, we're just kind of awaiting the Kyle Cuff decision. I, I, I almost like need at this point, we need like every player to just come out and say one way or another, like <laughs> I am officially staying because right. Obviously you assume like Dewan and Ernest and Zuby are saying, but like at this point, it just feels so crazy that you almost need them to just come out and be like, no, I am coming back definitively. <laughs> right. Um, so with Kyle Cuff, I guess we don't know. Is he coming back? Is he going to be, um, he's another, as well. He's another guy that not so much in the same vein as MJ Rice because of injury, but I guess more like Cam Martin where we still don't even really know. No, what, we don't really know what he, know what he is. Like right? what like like what if Kyle Cuff, if he was healthy last season, had been good enough to take over for Bobby Pettiford as yeah. like number two or like Joe Gesfu or take some of those guys' minutes. Like yeah. we don't we don't really know. No, he, really he, know. he was behind both those guys at the start of the year, but neither of those guys neither, neither of them did anything. Right. So either that's a bad sign because if neither of those guys did anything and he was behind them before the year started, that's not great. But counterpoint, maybe they were just better in practice and maybe in a game setting, Kyle Cuff would have gone off and he would yeah, have merged just, past those guys. We don't so, know. Again, more questions that we don't know the answer to right now. And obviously the Grady Dick decision is probably not going to happen for a while, Yeah, you would think. Yeah, so, I would imagine he's going to take all the time well, with the draft and everything. And then he'll enter the draft. Uh, the, the only question I think with Grady becomes when he enters the draft, does he enter it as I'm retaining my college eligibility and entering the draft process, or is he just going to okay, well, rip at the band off? To me, and correct me if I'm wrong, to me it seems like if there is even any minuscule question that you might return to college, why wouldn't you just enter the draft and retain eligibility? There's literally no, there's no negative. There's, as far as I can tell, there's absolutely zero consequence or negative anything of opting to go that route. Well, am I wrong? You're you're not wrong, but that's that's my point. Like what you just said, if there is any slight possibility of coming back, so that means but if I'm he does like, not do that, basically, he is basically like, saying, if you're not a top ten pick, why wouldn't you just say that? Well, I mean, I I think <laughs> he might be a top ten pick. No, I okay, fine, sure, but, yeah. So so what I'm saying is that like he might just rip the bandaid off and say there is is no chance I'm coming back. <laughs> there is none. Well, that's not what I wanted you to say. Well, <laughs> you don't know for sure. Uh, but, yeah, so it's going to be kind of the waiting game there. Um, Which is annoying. Yeah. It made me but I think for KU fans, they should be kind of used to that because that's what Jalen Wilson did the past couple of years. Yeah, Jalen Wilson did it. Uh, now, obviously, I think with Jalen Wilson's situation, you didn't expect him to become a 20-point-per-game Big 12 Player of the Year guy like you would with Grady. Right? And then, well, we also had – I mean, this has happened a lot. Like, uh, Oshag bought or not – yeah, Ochai, Ochai kind of waited. Did he do it for one year? He, he he went in one year. He actually was kind of expecting to stay in, and then like kind of last minute, the last week, he decided to come back. We saw uh, Yudoka Azubuki was the the longest waiting one. He literally went up until 
because I forget the day, it was like, you know, May 31st, June something, whatever, that he had to decide to come back. And the deadline passed. It became midnight on that day. And nobody had heard one way or another whether he was staying in the draft or coming back. And the deadline had passed. Turns out he ended up coming back to KU for his senior season. Um, I think he was just kind of upset about it because he wanted to go pro, but he was injured at the time and he couldn't participate in any of the uh, the offseason drills. So he had no choice. He had to come back. Hmm. Um, that means that we're kind of on a timeline here with any of those. I, now I expect Jalen and Kevin to say they're just staying in the draft. Um, that process for the draft, it's a couple weeks from now when you have to kind of declare by. And then you could be looking at like till the end of May, the beginning of June before See, any players have to make it. It should decision. all just be right now. I, do, I think it should just all be right now. I do think right this second. that. This year, there's going to be less of that. I almost just view it as like those three players are going to test and stay in. Like to me, it's not really as much of a conversation as last year when, when yeah, it was like, is Jalen going to stay? Is he going to go? Um, but I, I think now that you look for, well, yeah, because you know we did the whole circus of everyone give a percentage of what Grady is going to mm-hmm. come back, and I think the high the highest was thirty. Everybody else was yeah. twenty or less. Mm-hmm. So it's not likely. No. So that means if Grady does go, in addition to Kevin and Jalen, there's three players gone from this past year's team. Then you lose five players via transfer with MJ Rice, Joey Esfu, uh, Bobby Pettiford, Cam Martin, Zach Clements. So now you're down to eight players gone from this past year's team. Had 13 players to begin with. So that leaves you with five players left um, on the team. And uh, those five players, they would be Dewan Harris, KJ Adams, Ernest Duday, Zuby Edgefer, and Kyle Cuff. You have 12 scholarships this next year as opposed to 13 because of the self-imposed sanctions. So now you're down to basically having seven openings. You bring in four freshmen, with Chris Johnson, Jamari McDowell, Elmarco Jackson, and Marcus Adams. So now basically you are at a point where you have three scholarships to work with. I guess it would be two if Grady did shock the world and come back. Um, and then if Kyle Cuff goes, you're up to three slash four in that instance. Um so I guess what do you do here if you're KU? How do you allocate these scholarships? Are you going all wings? It's a, it's a tough question. I mean, certainly you need some shooting and some wings. I mean, you're going to lose of of the guys that you so you listed eight guys that have already left. Four of them were wing players. That's half the guys that just left your team. Mm-hmm. So and you don't have anybody else on the team that can fill that void. So you've got to be looking at at least one wing shooter type, probably two. And then uh, with the Kyle Cuff situation, like uh, I don't think you really want. I don't think you would feel super good about him being your backup point guard potentially going into the season. So you look at maybe a guard, or if you have questions about Ernest and his development with Zuby, maybe you look for a veteran big man. So I think you have to prioritize wings to start with, wings and shooting. And if you could find a wing that shoots, even better. Two birds, one stone. Right, no, he's I Nick think Springer. that's what you have to look for. He's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Josh Briscoe at 405. Or Grady Dick. <laughs> Kevin Flaherty at 440. KU Mailbag at 340. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Josh Briscoe will join the show at 4.05, but first, we got to get to our KU mailbag here on another edition of RCST. Let's go. All right. First up, 
right here. I don't have the music ready. Oh, I'm sorry. I jumped the gun. I'm excited. You really did. KU Mailbag, baby. All right, right, right. right. Here we go. This one from Paul. Why are we going after Jameel Reynolds when three of the four, three of the few guys, I don't know, maybe that's supposed to be four. Um, I'm not trying to like make fun of it. Typos happen. Uh, when three of the few guys coming back are bigs, can we get, can a guy get a few wings? <laughs> okay. Go to Wingstop, man, if you want even, wings that bad. This question is even more, uh, I'm trying to think of that word, even more relevant, I guess. Now with, the MJ Rice In light of yeah. the MJ Rice news. And for those that don't know, Jameel Reynolds is a 6'11 center from Temple who uh, recently was in contact with KU or was reported to that KU had talked to him about possibly transferring to KU. And I think this is more of just a KU doing its due diligence situation of, uh, I think with, with Ernest Duday, a lot of people are expecting him to take a huge leap into a sophomore year. And while I would say, yes, I, I think he probably is going to be better, it's not a guarantee that he's going to take a jump to like, all Big 12 level type play. And if there is the possibility of acquiring like a true veteran post player, I think that intrigues you a little bit if you're Kansas, at the very least, right? As a guy who Ernest can play off of, can learn from, because because right now, if you just focus on wings and guards in the portal, which is possible, basically what, what you're saying is, you're saying either we're going to keep playing small ball five with KJ, or we're just going to really, really rely on Ernest taking a huge step or Zuby taking a huge step or both of them. And this season, there was situations where you were relying on guys to take steps and it didn't happen. Joey Esther didn't take a step. Bobby Pettiford didn't take a step. You were relying on the freshmen to step up and come through. That didn't happen. And so now you're kind of in the same boat. It's like, okay, well, how, how much do you want to rely on Ernest Uday becoming what you think he can become. And and again, I'm not saying that he can't do that or that he won't do that. Because I, I listen, I'm I'm as optimistic as anybody about it. But I'm just saying if you have the opportunity to go out and find somebody who uh, is a veteran or a true rim protector or a true post player, first of all, we know Bill Self loves those type of guys, number one. And number two, at the very least, I think if you're KU, you at least do your due diligence. Because at this point, you're going to have three, four openings to bring in some different guys. So even if you do bring in two, three wings and a guard, you might still have the possibility of still on top of that bringing in another another big man, right? Yeah, I, I think that's very well put. Uh, it basically gives you insurance there. And, I, okay, also, sorry, one more thing. Yeah. Also, I was just on top of that, coming into the season, you had four big men, so you thought you had great depth. Cam Martin goes out for the year. Zach Clements is injured and in and out of lineup. Even Zuby was dealing with injuries. He ended up you ended up being really thin at a position where you thought you were. It was one of your deeper spots. Yes, and that's the thing. You're not going to go into a year with just two centers. Like you're going to want that third center. I guess you could say yes. Uh, KJ is a center. I think the idea is to play KJ more on the wing. And so when you look yeah. at it that way too, you do have Chris Johnson can play on the wing. Jamari McDowell can play on the wing. Marcus Adams can play on the wing. KJ Adams will play some on the wing if you view the wing as being like that four spot. I think even El Marco Jackson, he's not a wing, but he's going to play a lot next to Dewan Harris, which means he's going to be at the two, which the past couple years has been occupied by a wing. So there are less minutes to go around at the wing than you might think are totally needed to begin with. Um, and they're still going to bring on two, maybe even three guys on the wing position with the transfer portal. Yeah. You don't need all of your, let's say you do if, if Kyle Cuff does leave. At that point, and Grady Dick goes pro. You would have four scholarships to go out there for. You don't need all four to be wings. You might only need three. Maybe you could even get away with two of them being wings. And if you're looking for more wings, Jefferson's. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think with with Reynolds, when I look at him, uh, he's a guy who can score on the block down low. He's a big body for you. He is that insurance in case Uday doesn't work. But he's also a change of pace. If you need a big man who can go in and yeah. score for you with his back to the basket, that would be Reynolds. And so again, I think I the report was that they were just talking to him. Exactly. So it's not like this is a slam dunk. This dude's going to, you know. For sure. So I, think I, I, the, I, I think would just say... The, it doesn't preclude you from bringing on a bunch yeah. of wings. They're yeah. going to be fine. I think there's a lot of guys that are probably going to be talking to a lot of schools that right. may not ever end up going there. Yeah, it's like going somewhere for dinner and being like, man, why'd we go here for dinner? I wanted ice cream tonight. And it's like, well, you can get ice cream after <laughs> dinner, too. You can have both. Uh, this one from James. You can pick one transfer target to auto-commit. Who and why? This is interesting. And honestly, the answer may have just come out at about right after the show started, which is Jalen Cook. Uh, out of Tulane, a two-time All-American, a two-time All-First-Team, yeah, American Conference player. I don't want to say All-American because then it sounds like he's an All-American. No, All-American Conference player. Averaged like 20 points a game this season, shoots like 37% from three. Uh, I think he's more of a true point guard, though, so I'm not really 100% sure how you pair him with, with DeWan Harris, but uh, in terms of scoring, like immediately, whoa, that jumps out the, that jumps off the page at you. So he's the guy that I would look at. Uh, as somebody who maybe you'd want. And going back to the big men, uh, I know you like him a lot, Derek. Yeah. Graham E.K. from Yeah, Wyoming. that's the one for me. That's the one for me. I, I know the wings are of utmost importance, and I, and I do agree that is probably of more importance. But Graham E.K. to me fills so much to help out with this team as far as being a back-to-the-basket scorer. He's going to get points. He's going to get rebounds. He gives you coverage at the center position. He gives a veteran to look up to for Ernest Duda, which that's part of it, too. If you're trying to develop young big man, what better way than having a guy that they can look up to and, and kind of practice with and stuff like that? Uh, but I, I also would be willing to throw up like Khalif Battle in, in that for me because he is someone who can score off the bounce. He hits threes. Um, I, I think that would be a great get uh, for KU as well. This one from Trent. Who is your top breakout candidate for KU football this year? Okay. On offense, I think uh, you might look at Tanaka Scott. I think you have him as well. I think he was in for a big role last year before the off-the-field yeah, stuff happened. Yeah, I was going to say, the off-the-field stuff really kind of stunted his potential. Uh, so coming into this season, if he if he you know keeps a clean nose and everything, he's a guy that I think – because remember, he was a guy that going into the preseason last year, anytime anybody brought up any receivers, all the coaches were like, yeah. dude, this guy Tanaka Scott's making NFL-level catches. Like This guy is doing really, really well. And then he had the off-the-field stuff literally like, what, two weeks before the season started or whatever, gets suspended the first game, and then kind of it felt like he needed to sort of basically almost use the whole season to almost regain that trust. So he's the guy I would keep an eye on. Listen, would it be that crazy to say Daniel Hyshaw? Like, he kind of was breaking out, and then he gets hurt. And then I feel like people kind of forgot about him. Would it be that crazy if he, if both he and Devin Neal end up both being like, 800, 900, or 1,000 yard rushers. No, I, I think that's it. And would you call that a breakout? I don't know. That's tough. Because, yeah, I mean, if he would have just kept the pace he all was year, already, he did break yeah, out. He was already breaking out last year, but then obviously. Maybe if he, he does it for a full season? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to throw out Bryce Cable, do. Uh, Bryce has had some ups and downs at the right tackle position in the last two years, but they've moved him to left tackle. And, and it, the way that they seem pretty firm about him being the left tackle, even when you have Kobe Baines and Logan Brown on the roster, makes me think that he is progressing very nicely for this team. 
Uh, I thought he got thrown into the fire maybe a little earlier than normal a couple of years ago when when you look at the body development you need for offensive linemen. But you know he like I said he's had ups and downs, but he has shown some flashes. I wouldn't be shocked if if that's a guy you're looking at um, if we're going with breakout players that are not transfers because I think okay, the yeah. transfers are going to be your biggest avenue for breakout guys like a Logan Brown and stuff yeah. uh, defensively. Jeremy Robinson, that's the one that I would go to. I also, uh, they've talked a lot about Tommy Dunn, DJ Withers on the interior of the defensive line, so those would be the guys that I would I would say O.J. Burroughs. And again, he had a solid season last year. I don't know if you would define it as a breakout season last year, but what if he gets like four or five interceptions this year? I mean, from safety positions. I think he could have potentially a breakout year. He's a guy that pretty much all season long, the coaches were talking about, hey, this guy's got great instincts and coverage. He really understands coverages and whatnot. So he's a guy I would keep an eye on. And then you mentioned the transfers, but also J.B. Brown was tied with his transfer rating with Logan Brown in terms of uh, out of the transfer portal. So what if he comes in and, and becomes an impact player at the linebacker position? Yeah, and it's hard, I guess, for maybe a guy like Logan Brown to break out because you have such high expectations. With J.B. Brown, maybe it's lower expectations, and he does end up being maybe your best linebacker. It wouldn't yeah. be shocking. This one from Frank. Brett Yormark just signed a deal to put Big 12 hoops on TV in Rucker Park. He said that he believes basketball is undervalued, that he wants a nationwide footprint, and that he wants to think outside of the box. Take all those okay. statements for their extremes. What do you want? I came up with a bunch of different ideas. You want me okay. to just throw them at you? Yeah. So, okay, so first so up, next? you add Gonzaga and San Diego State, and you add a Big East school. So like UConn, UConn, Marquette, okay. somebody like that. Okay, that's the first one. Piggybacking off of that, you then create your own tournament, the Big Twelve, turn like a in-season tournament. Okay, and you they used play to do it, this in the Big Eight, they and you played a preseason conference tournament in like December. Yeah, and you play it. No, but I, in my mind, I was envisioning this counting as conference play. So like the start of conference play. Okay, would the, would be this tournament it counts and to your the, conference record. I'll explain the reasoning behind that. And you have it, you know, if Brett Yormark wants to go crazy, you have it in, like, Germany or something insane like that. <laughs> or if or if you don't want to go international, you can have it in, like, California or whatever. And the reason behind it is, let's say the Big 12 does have, like, 18 schools in in, in basketball. The reason you do it this way is the, because it'll help with travel. So you send everyone to one spot, and then you have the schools that, like, are across the country from each other. They play at the tournament the one time, and then they don't have to worry about, like, mid-season travel. So, like... If you have UConn, UConn and Gonzaga play each other at this tournament, boom. Now you don't have to worry about having to send UConn or Gonzaga both across the country, whatever. Kill two birds with one stone. You got your own exclusive Big 12 conference tournament in the middle of the season. What do you think of that idea? I don't hate it. Um, I actually... I don't know that it's necessary for some of the big conferences to have conference tournaments anyway. We already see these teams, at least what we saw now, in the Big 12, these teams were playing home and homes with each other. And, you know, why do we need that third time on a neutral site? Uh, what if you just extended the regular season out two weeks and you, you know, did that preseason conference tournament to have everybody get to... Uh, especially okay. if you were adding more teams. So, I don't know. It'd I think the issue with that is that Brett Yormark this season particularly has shown that he wants to invest heavily in the Big 12 tournament postseason as an experience, right? So I don't know that he's willing to cut that. Okay, how about this idea? You're trying to you're trying to go you're trying to expand the game. You're trying to reach new reach new audiences. Play a game in space. Yes, let's do it. They have they have the game on the aircraft carrier. I'm willing to take it to another notch. Let's just play a game in space. Yeah. Or underwater. 
No, I, I I do think the way that I take this the most is that they're going to, like you said, try to add basketball brands, maybe for basketball only. That's where it gets tricky, though. If you're talking to like a San Diego State and you're like, hey, we want you to join, but only for basketball. And then the Pac-12 comes along and they're like, no, we want you to join for everything. What are they going to do? They're obviously going to take the Pac-12. But there are certain schools like UConn's independent in football. Gonzaga, I don't even know if they have a football team. I don't it might think be FCS. I can't remember. I don't um, think they do. Like that might be appealing to them, right? To where I think that's what the kind okay, of response Okay, you build an Atlantis city underwater, and then you play a game underwater. <laughs> is there any appeal to that? What do you mean? Like, at least the, like when they do the aircraft carrier. Is there game, any appeal to playing views. a game on an aircraft carrier? If you're doing it underwater, you might as well just do it indoors. You can't tell the difference. Is there any appeal to playing the game on an aircraft carrier? Yes. No. Like, visually, it's cool. No, it's stupid. Visu- uh, well, yes, it is stupid, <laughs> but visually, it's kind of cool. Like, if you're playing it underwater, no, it'd be, it's like, an, playing it'd it be like an aquarium. Dude, it'd be sweet. What do you mean? Just play it in an aquarium then. What? No, because then it's not underwater. Oh, my gosh. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, this one from Scott. If David McCormick had returned as a super senior, would Kansas still be playing basketball? I'll be honest. I, I have uh, not racked my brain about a question as much as this one because I yeah, think there are just, a lot of variables. Yeah, there's right? so much going on. So first of all, Dave had a foot injury that he was dealing with all of the last like two seasons. How would his foot have progressed this offseason? I don't know. That's a big question. Is Dave the same as he was the last two years, which is an inconsistent player that had high ceilings but a lot of low lows? Or is he All-American? Right. Does he take another step forward finally and become a first-team, second-team All-American type center? Whose scholarship does he take? I think that's a piece of it too right does does that disallow kansas from going out and being able to get a kevin mcculler this past offseason or does it just mean that a guy like cam martin or zach clements transfers a year earlier i don't know uh is ku in the same bracket i think that's part of it if KU's in the same bracket i feel very good that with david mccormick on this roster if you just pluck him on and take out you know one of zach or cam sure they're beating arkansas yeah i still don't know are if they, they beat uconn yeah, i think it's they? coin flip yeah. I think they could. Yeah. But I think you're looking at two similar teams there at that point. Yeah. Who have a big man that they center a lot of the offense around with a bunch of wings around them. UConn probably a better three point shooting team. And remember, but would it be crazy have, if Kansas beat them? No. Well, and remember they have they have Klingon off the bench. Yeah, exactly. So and like, you didn't have that. So, you know, it'd be Klingon versus KJ. And that's the thing. That is where the progression of Dave comes into play. Because if Dave is the same guy we've seen in the past two years, Sunogo is a better big man. You know, like this, yeah, right? Probably, yeah. At least, unless you're Dave getting the ceiling is, version Dave of Dave. If Dave is all-American level Dave. Then you're preferring Dave, then it's right? it's Dave versus Sonogo. Dave is probably So gonna, I really do no. think that is a coin flip. But if you do get by UConn, you, you're probably winning the title at that point. That's the big coin flip game. But yeah. also, I don't know that Bill Self would have been back for that game anyway. So maybe you do take yeah. UConn at that point in time, yeah, right? Yeah, I don't know. Now, if it, if it does allow them over the course of the regular season... What if they win an extra game that they're not supposed to? Or what if just because part of the reason Houston was ahead of Kansas was not just because it wasn't the resume thing. It was some of the metric sites like Houston was maybe number one on Ken Palm or Bart Torvik. Kansas was like ninth. What if Kansas, instead of losing by 20 to Texas, loses by 10? What if instead of losing by 15 to Iowa State, they lose by seven? And collectively, some of these things allow Kansas metrically to be like the number four, number five team to where it's closer. Now more in the resume. Kansas is either the number one overall seed or they're, yes, ahead of Houston in the Midwest. And at that point, what does it do to the bracket? Does Kansas have Houston? path. I, I think they beat Auburn. I think that, I don't know, we saw them beat Miami last year. I know it's probably a better version of Miami this year, but yeah. I think they could beat Miami with those big wings to match up on, on sure, what yeah. Miami does. And then you got Texas again. Yeah, so I, I think it's definitely possible, but like, it's just, it, 
and I, and I guess it's, it's easy for me to look at like Texas, for instance, in the Elite Eight and be like, well, you lost by 20 to Texas last time you played, basically, or last two times you played. Is he worth 20 points in a vacuum? Probably not. But think about how differently every single team would have had to defend Kansas. This oh, year. yeah, for sure. There would have been a real threat inside on the post. They would have had somebody to throw it to. It would have opened up Grady Dick so much yeah. more on the outside. And, it would have Jaylen. opened up Jalen on the yeah, outside. For sure. Um, that you could convince me, yeah, Kansas does win another title this year. But I do think realistically, they probably would have gone further and been a better overall team. But still, without Bill Self, this tournament run, I'm not sure they would have got it done. But it's wide open, so you never know. I guess, yeah, that, that is the real answer. All right, we have another question from Tanner, but we don't really have time today. So, Tanner, apologies. We'll get to your question uh, next week. With Nick Springer, I'm Derek Johnson. One hour down, two to go. Josh Briscoe joins us next. This is RCST. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Nick Springer on FM 1017 and 1320. KLWN. Depend on it. Welcome back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk, 4 o'clock hour here on KLWN. We'll have Kevin Flaherty at 440. Josh Briscoe is going to join us here momentarily. If you're looking for the perfect destination for your next social or corporate gathering, venue 1235, located right off of I-70, five minutes from downtown Lawrence. Large climate-controlled event space with a catering kitchen, private suite, covered patio you can do a uh, nfl draft watch party there whatever event you have upcoming with venue 1235 we got uh josh briscoe now on the phone with us uh you can check him out on twitter at jb briscoe you can also find all his work with 810 in kansas city uh si now with uh his chief's website and uh arrowhead report as well as uh times hours in the athletic uh so there's been a lot of off-season happenings since the last time we talked to you josh with Charles Amenahue and the Chiefs not looking at uh, any or uh, bringing in any receivers at this point, and uh, also going out and getting Juwan Taylor and the Chiefs not getting any receivers and bringing back Derek Naughty and the Chiefs not bringing in uh, any receivers. Uh, which offseason move, though, I guess that actually has happened to this point, do you think is the best that the Chiefs have made? And what offseason move that they have made do you have maybe the most questions about? It's interesting that the uh, the whole off season has been uh, uh, fascinating for all of the moving parts that you mentioned, and then also the fact that some of the most uh, stressful parts of the off season haven't really been addressed yet, right? Because of the the wide receiver room still being awfully empty looking. So uh, from from wire to wire, I would say the Charles Minnehue signing makes perfect sense in the Brett Veach, Joe Colin, Steve Spagnuolo whole format, right? He has all the versatility; he can move inside, outside. Uh, and it seems like he's still an ascending player on the younger side. All of that makes perfect sense. I guess I might be ever so slightly timid about just the cost on Jawan Taylor uh, because it is at $20 million per that I'm not sure other teams were going to offer him. But I understand why the Chiefs did it. He provides that flexibility. So I don't think I've got any signings right now that I just, like, hate. Um, and I think the Aminiki one seems like the one that is, like, almost most on brand, if you will. Is there a, a player who left the team, whether it's because of the contract or them just leaving in general, that maybe surprised you the most? Um, I think Juju did, and because of the contract, like you said, I mean that kind of expands the whole receiver room. Where both for for guys leaving, uh, Juju and Hardman, and then guys they they weren't in on. Um, Jacoby Myers, not that I was a great fit, but that was not as expensive of a deal as I expected. And that's been true for pretty much every receiver that hit the market this year. Um, but in terms of outgoing, yeah, I 
if you would have said, hey, Juju signing this deal that boils down to what it actually is, which is like, you know, one year, 22, or two years, 22 million, it's really 20, or less than that even, two years, 18 or something, that basically boils down to three years, 25, without the incentives and all that, I would have told you the Chiefs were the ones signing him to that deal. So will they ever sign a receiver at this point? Um, never or, again. Okay, so this is like a Chicago Cubs-type World Series drought. They're never going to have another receiver yeah. for like 100 and something years. Yeah, and it's interesting. So here's my like actual kind of serious take is that the, the Chiefs chose this, so I hope they're happy uh, <laughs> because because to that point, like Juju wasn't that expensive, right? Bring back McCole Hardman on that deal he with the Jets for one year would have made sense. Um, I, I guess I believe that they are really high on, on Canarius Tony and Sky Moore and their, you know, the development and health for each of those guys in, in inverse order, I think. Um, I, I love Canarius Tony. I'm, I'm really an optimist about him. And, and even I'm going, hey, are you, are you sure your number one receiver is a guy that, that hasn't shown durability at the NFL level? Like, that's not a, a character flaw or a personality defect or anything. I'm just worried about his body breaking down. Meanwhile, Sky Moore was fine. He's he's fine. He's, he was he was fine as a rookie. He he flashed some moments, and I'm not selling my my Sky Moore stock. I'm not telling you he stinks or will never be good. I just don't know that that that's the bet that I would make if I was in the Chiefs' shoes. And frankly, I just it wouldn't have been the bet that I would have made. That I would have bet the Chiefs were betting on. If that's not too many layers of bets deep, um, I I'm a little surprised, and I really think that at this point. They they would they will take Odell Beckham Jr. as soon as he gives them a number that they are comfortable with. <laughs> the weird thing is I would have said that was true for Juju as well, and they clearly weren't comfortable with the number he took to go to New England. So um, it, it really has been kind of bizarre, and I, I would have been wrong about most of my receiver predictions. To this point, I think Beckham's more likely than Hopkins, though. Okay, so how about instead of receivers, you just get all tight ends. Draft Dalton Kincaid, draft Michael Merritt, Mary if you can, trade up however you can get him, and you just run – Patrick Mahomes and 10 tight ends. And then next year, trade up, go get Brock Bowers. I love yes. this pass. This is, this is actually kind of what I want. Um, I was a little surprised they brought back Blake Bell uh, because I thought that that might be a, a real open pass in the draft, and it still might be because they don't have a fullback on their roster right now either. So, yeah, I, I actually do think that they, they can and should and might draft a, a, a tight end in the first two days of, of this year's draft class. I would be all over that. Well, it sounds like uh, just a little spoiler to look ahead for good idea, bad idea. Our first one we were going to have on there was converting Blake Bell to being a fullback. So that that good idea, clearly? Yeah, I mean, doing some sort of hybrid thing there, I, I legitimately think is a good idea because the, n- the number of times the Chiefs are running like traditional standard fullback stuff is so minimal anyway uh, that when you do, sometimes you can get the, the best push with a defensive lineman in that spot. And if you've got your, your uh, fullback running wheel route, Blake Bell, let him do that. So yeah, I actually do think that's a good idea. Okay, uh, so what does make more sense at this point? Uh, it seems like you kind of uh, tipped your cap a little bit there. Would it be signing Odell or would it be trading for DeAndre Hopkins? I think it'll be signing for Odell, specifically if he's still in the one-year deal market. Uh, that That's the biggest reason. It's not necessarily performance or health or um, you know, any sort of like uh, off the field, whatever. I, I think in a lot of in a lot of categories, Hopkins and Beckham make a similar amount of sense. But uh, Hopkins is going to cost draft picks, which immediately like makes me turn my nose up at it, just because I'd, I'd like to avoid that when I can if I'm a fake general manager here. Um, and, and then the salary, and then having to restructure whatever it is with Hopkins. 
you, you can move money around, and maybe the Cardinals will even pay for part of it, but you're still inheriting someone else's contract there. If you get Odell, it can be incentives. It can be like not likely to be earned incentives, and, and you can kind of use that to, to, to create some cap tricks, your void years, whatever. But most importantly, it's not a multi-year commitment to a, an older-than-usual guy in terms of what the Chiefs give out in terms of multi-year deals at this point in the, the Brett Beach tenure. So I, I think a one-year deal that ends up looking like Juju's deal last year would make a ton of sense. But Odell Beckham has already tweeted about, you know, $4 million in incentives isn't going to cut it, and that's what the Chiefs gave Juju last year. So um, I, I think it makes sense. It does seem like Beckham is, is looking for more than anything he's found at this point because he's still out here waiting around. Um, I, I think the Chiefs could eventually be the team that has the best overall offer uh, in, in terms of situation to kind of hopefully put him in a spot where he could sign a longer-term deal next offseason if he's healthy and productive in Kansas City. But it wouldn't surprise me one bit if if he signs literally anywhere else. I mean, I, I have no great feel for the, the pulse of this anymore, other than that I, I really do think, and this is just, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of I'm, I'm navigating a few things here. I really do think that, that the price has been way too high on DeAndre Hopkins for a while, and it does seem like the Cardinals are starting to accept that, and the price is moving down. I think they've got to make that move before the draft, though, because or I guess during the draft. Because after that, you're talking about draft picks another year in the future. So I, I think we're going to get to a, a turning point for Hopkins somewhere. I just don't love the Chiefs being the team to, to make that investment. Okay, let's say they do sign Odell Beckham Jr. At that point, would you say the Chiefs' receiving core is better, worse, or the same as it was last year? That's a great question. It's a, it's a fabulous question because the, the setup ends up being they add Odell. Is it better? <laughs> like that is, and we're and that it, we are, we are already so deep in the hypothetical land, right? <laughs> so I I think it would be better for this reason. I, I think I think last year's Juju and this year's potential Odell very similar. You got some injury questions, and we'll see what the production is. I healthy Beckham is more explosive. I don't know if he is right now. So let's make those two guys a wash. The reason I think it's better is because it's Kadarius Tony in an off season. Uh, and Sky Moore in year two. And those are two legitimate jumps that I do believe the Chiefs are expecting. I do think that's a smart, reasonable thing to expect. I don't want that to be the thing you're relying on. Expect it, yes. Wait for it, bet on it, rely on it. I'd rather not. So I, I do think it'll be better because I think Sky Moore in the offense will have a bigger role in year two. That's typically the pass for Andy Reid rookies anyway, specifically wide receivers. And I do think Kadarius Tony is going to be an absolute treat to watch in this offense. Uh, but again, it's not to just you know totally pump your ego here, but it's a great question because it is a question, and that is presuming that they add a likely future Hall of Fame wide receiver in the next couple of weeks. All right, well, uh, what about uh, a trade package for, I, I don't know, like who else is out there? I, there's the Brandon Ayuk uh, rumor coming yeah. out that, that they could trade him. I don't know what a trade package looks like there. Are you having to give up a first? Are you having to give up, I don't know, second and other picks? Uh, like what other options are there? I've seen Mike Evans's name thrown around a little bit, and now we're playing another like older receiver who's been a hurt kind of game. Ayuk is interesting because the, the fit makes a ton of sense. I think he's 25 or maybe he'll turn 26 for this season. I have my pro football reference up in front of me. But um, I, I think that makes sense from the scheme fit. It doesn't make sense from the perspective of you're going to spend a first-round pick and have to give this dude a contract. You, you've devalued your own first-round pick there because part of the reason that's so good is because you get that rookie contract. Um, so I, and beyond that, 
I really don't know. And that's the part that kind of intrigues me because A.J. Brown was not a clearly on-the-block candidate to the extent that, that he ultimately was. We didn't know about that until the trade went down. And then we find out, you know, uh, a couple of months ago, I think, right, that, like, the Chiefs were actually interested in A.J. Brown shortly after trading away Tyreek Hill. So if there are number one receivers on teams who are entering quarterback purgatory or want to rebuild right now, I, I imagine the Chiefs will be in on those talks. But I wonder what the what the bar is going to be in terms of, yep, we'll trade a first-round pick and give a new contract to this guy. Because they were willing to do that for Tyreek Hill, right? Like, they were negotiating that contract. It wasn't like, you know, hey, we're not talking, you find your best landing spot. Uh, the price just got too high, and so they moved him for picks. Cool. They were interested in A.J. Brown. I guess the draft pick price that, that the, uh, the Eagles gave up was just too much for the Chiefs to match that, even if they were happy with the finances. That's really interesting. Is Brandon Ayuk on the right side of that cutoff? For me, he's probably not, and that's just maybe that's because I am so poisoned on the idea of like, yep, trade your most useful offseason asset and then give a dude a bunch of money. Um, because part of the reason the Chiefs are so set for success right now is because their rookie contracts are looking like outrageous values. Outside of receiver, what remains the biggest position of need headed into the draft, or, or with maybe some veteran free agents here? It's it's hard not to say tackle still. Because if you don't say tackle, it means you're assuming your starting tackles in, in week one are probably going to be Juwan Taylor and Lucas Niang. I, I do think the Chiefs still have some optimism for Niang, but it wouldn't surprise me one bit if he drafted a tackle at 31. And, and ideally, or at least theoretically, the idea of having Juwan Taylor be able to play either side, you could take a natural left tackle if he's there at 31, or you could take a natural right tackle if he's there at 31. And either way, he's just as valuable to you if he's a good enough player to, to hold down that spot at the NFL level. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense. They still need to add another edge uh, in, in my book because I, I like Aminahu a lot, and, and his rotation and his success on the inside is going to be fantastic. Um, but I, I would like to see George Karloftis, Charles Aminahu, and somebody else be your one, two, three, and that might not even be counting your Carlos Dunlap type. Um, maybe Aminahu is replacing kind of the production of Frank Clark and maybe even upgrading on that regular season. He should be. Uh, but they, they need a little more ammunition there, both short-term and long-term. The edges, I guess, on both sides of the trenches. Uh, if they wanted to invest beside Chris Jones for a defensive tackle early in the draft, they'd be in a good spot. And, and that, to completely, I guess, um, do a runaround of your actual question, they don't have that many glaring needs because they've at least patched up their most glaring holes with competence, except at wide receiver. Um, that's Mike Edwards, the safety that they signed. He's a, he's a competent third safety, and they don't have to draft somebody. You, you have competence at your, your trench spots now. You even if you're not a super fan of Derek Noddy. Well, he, he can do that job, though, and it'll be okay. You can still upgrade, but it's stable. And I, I think that's the best thing the Chiefs have accomplished this offseason is stability, but I'm, I, I would like at least one or two more real knockout punches. The draft is uh, about a month away. Uh, Chiefs are picking 31st uh, last with, with the one forfeited pick there. And I, I know most people are kind of under the assumption there's no way they would trade out of the first round at this point when the draft is in Kansas City. So what do you think would be more likely, that they stand pat or that they kind of do what they did last year to go up and get a Trent McDuffie and, and maybe trade up? Yeah, that was a question I posed in a little factor fiction game we were playing yesterday in the zone of, of saying, all right, here, factor fiction, the, the Chiefs will pick at 31, period. And I don't think that anyone 
said they would. I, I think that's probably the case. Uh, I, I would guess that they probably move up. Just And that just depends on where the tiers are kind of in their board, right? Like if they've got 25 players at the first-round grade, but maybe they don't have some of the quarterbacks, they could wait there at 31 and have a really, really, really good chance of getting one of those guys. If they see the class of the tackle position about to fall off, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see them go up and get that guy. It's just it's a tricky needle to thread because that can be Trent McDuffie, and you get him instead of settling on Kyrie Elam, or it could be you trading up for Brevin Speaks because you panicked and you the last guy on that tier of defensive lineman for you was, was falling off the board, so you overpaid to go draft a player who you overdrafted. So I, I would be like hesitant to do that if I was Brett Veach. I, my goal would be to have the last pick of the night, but it, it would not surprise me at all if they move up. It would surprise me if they moved down partially because of just sort of the, the Kansas City aspect. Who are some players that you have, uh, I don't know, uh, just from either talking to other people or doing some research on them yourself, um, I don't know. Who are some players that you think could go in that first round pick that that you think would be good fits for the Chiefs? Uh, you you've caught me without my draft with my draft guide down already. This is this is too soon. Until those are all out, I'm not prepared to go player by player, big school breakdown. Uh, but I will I will tell you this. So you've got the the defensive end out of K State. He seems like a perfect, absolutely perfect uh, scheme fit. You got Van Ness out of Iowa, who they probably have to trade up for. He's another edge. You could do some inside outside stuff that is just it is so. Van Ness is so freaking spagsy that it it makes me like worried that they're going to overpay to go land him, put him opposite Carlos and rotate into Minihue. Um, and then the the I think it's the tackle out of Oklahoma is a more natural fit on the right side at thirty one. That would make a ton of sense to me as well. Um, the the thing about the classes in general, the couple of position groups that kind of freak me out. We talked about the, the tight end group. Take a tight end in day two, please. Just find one who fits your scheme. I would love that. Um, the wide receiver class, though, is a fascinating one because most of these guys, um, Smith and Jigba, probably the least of them, but he's kind of a fascinating case because of you know where, where he fits in a modern offense. But a lot of these receivers are going to be within at least striking distance of the Chiefs at 31 if you are talking about potentially trading up or waiting to see how it shakes out to land there. I just am not willing to make that my my gamble for who the number one receiver this year is going to be because the first year in a Chiefs offense is always so difficult. Um, but I, I would be tremendously intrigued by some of those receivers, and I'm hoping over the next month I'm going to have at least one who I fall in love with. So when they get drafted like 19th overall, I'm going to be really sad to have my heart broken. Yeah, there we go. Uh, you good to finish up with some good idea, bad idea? Oh, you know I'm just here for the good idea, bad idea. All right. Uh, we, we already crossed off the list the – uh, one on Blake Bell, but uh, giving Chris Jones Aaron Donald money—good idea, bad idea? Uh, boy, you've really—you have absolutely put me in a corner on this <laughs> one because because if it was extending Chris Jones yesterday, I would say yeah, fantastic idea. And I will I will just make this point, and then I will go back to playing your game. <laughs> I don't think he's asking for Aaron Donald money. I really don't. I really think he's saying, hey, just go ahead and reaffirm me as the second highest paid ta- the highest paid non-Aaron Donald defensive tackle in football. <laughs> and paying him like that is a good idea. Paying him like Aaron Donald, I guess, is a bad idea. But that's because I don't think he's asking for it. If that's what it took, I would uh, I would be really tempted, and I would honestly, I still probably do it. Maybe it is a good idea. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I know you've talked a lot about guys that you want to wear number zero, and there are a yeah. couple good options, but I am disappointed you have not brought up Chris Jones wearing the number zero. Good idea, bad idea. 
that would be a great idea because the NFL hates fun. You gotta let the trenches guys get in on the zeros because I've, I'm not the first one to make this point. I've seen it on Twitter, but like Vita Vea wearing zero would rule. So my suggestion <laughs> is, you know, Canarius Tony wears zero, and then you legalize double zeros and you you give that one to the trenches, and then Chris Jones is absolutely double zeros. Okay, uh, last one I got for you here. Trading all of your picks next season. So pull in a, uh, I think Mike Ditka did this with the Saints to get Ricky Williams, but trading mm-hmm. all your picks next year to get Marvin Harrison Jr. It is. It, I wondered who it was going to be because I was, I was <laughs> waiting to see if you were saying next year to go get someone this year. I was like, that's a bad idea. And then I thought, well, if he says Marvin Harrison Jr. or Brock Bowers, I'm going to have to say it's kind of a good idea, right? Like, it's not a good idea, but it kind of is a good idea. It's a good idea, Dan. Why not? Good idea. That's a fun idea. It's a fun idea. It's That's... a delicious idea. Yes, Are you kidding absolutely. me? All right. Well, Josh, I appreciate the time as always. You can check out all of his work with, uh, he's the co-host of The Zone on 810 in Kansas City, Arrowhead Report with SI Now and Times Hours on The Athletic. You can give him a follow at JB Briscoe on Twitter. Josh, appreciate the time as always, man. Always happy to do it. Trade all your picks and start trading other guys. Move back, re- get your, you know, re- uh, refill your pick pool. All of a sudden, now you got Marvin Harrison Jr. and Brock Bowers. Let's go! I, I have fixed the Chiefs. The perfect draft. The perfect draft. Thanks again, man. See ya. All right, that's Josh Briscoe. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Kevin Flaherty is going to join the show in 15 minutes with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. We'll be back after this time out on KLWN. Depend on it. Welcome back in to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson, and we're joined now by Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. Uh, we'll get to some KU basketball talk here in a second, but the uh, Final Four is happening this weekend, and it uh, certainly is an interesting one. San Diego State, FAU, Miami, and UConn all in it. Uh, well, let's just start with that FAU-San Diego State matchup. What do you think is most going to determine who wins that game, and do you give the winner a real shot at actually winning the title? You know, it's it's kind of interesting because I, I feel like it's a lot like the FAU-Tennessee game, right? Like you have one of the nation's elite defenses. You have a team that's significantly more physical than Florida Atlantic is. And, and on the other hand, you're saying, well, you know, Tennessee goes through spurts where, you know, they don't score for for one reason or another and they miss shots. And that's San Diego State, right? Yeah. Like, there, there, there's, there are a lot of similarities there. And I, I think that's the fascinating thing about this matchup is, is Florida Atlantic has been really good about just kind of hanging around and then, you know, seizing the moment as much as anything. And I think that San Diego State's a a team that, you know, they may have a similar chance. I think a lot of people see San Diego State as a really tough matchup because they're bigger, they're more physical. But along with that, San Diego State plays some really sort of weird big lineups that can't shoot all that well. And so there's a chance, like in that Tennessee game, where San Diego State maybe goes on like a six-minute scoreless stretch, and, and that could wind up being the difference if Florida Atlantic keeps scoring. And so if it's FAU, i probably give them maybe a little bit more uh, of a chance in the title game, as crazy as that sounds. You know, the, the one thing I feel like if San Diego State did make it through is – you would wonder, hey, are they going to be physical enough to, to match up with UConn? Are they going to be athletic enough to match up with UConn? And they just really need UConn to, 
to kind of have the the same game that Alabama had against San Diego State, where they just missed shots. And I think Florida Atlantic has maybe a slightly better chance to just go out and, and beat UConn straight up, so to speak. Well, I know I joked with you about this on Twitter, but now I actually want a real answer. If FAU does win the title and they bring back their entire team, basically, which I think they can do, how do you go about ranking that? Because normally, I mean, if if any team, like if Kansas or Kentucky or whoever, won the title and brought back their entire team, they'd be a slam dunk preseason number one. But also, I we'd probably view it as like, well, they won it all, they bring everybody back, but were they really the best team? I, I don't know. Where where the heck would you rank them in your way too early 2023-24 rankings if they won it all? Yeah, it's brutal, right? Because it, especially with FAU, given that – you know, you look at Carolina, for instance, last year, or, or UCLA a couple years ago, and the tournament run was the best thing about those teams, right? Like, North Carolina was not a good team, and then went to the NCAA tournament and was a great team for five or six games. And so you're you're really trying to, to kind of push that forward, and so North Carolina started this year, obviously, at number one, and, and wound up not even reaching the NCAA tournament. UCLA, when it went through that, you know, wound up being, you know, not that bad. I think they wound up being a top 10 or top 15 team in Kempom the next year, but maybe not as good as people thought when they went to the Final Four and lost to Gonzaga in overtime. And I, I think that's where the challenge lies. I realize this is a really long answer, but Florida Atlantic was really good all season long, Derek. Like, that's the thing that I think changes the calculus a little bit. And that, like you said, we have a tendency to overrank teams that do well in March, where we forget about what happened in the first several months of the season like it didn't matter. And we've been burned by that in the past. But that's not necessarily the case here, because you have a team that, that lost, what, three games all season long? And and you have a team that right now is currently ranked top 20 in Kempom. And, you know, this isn't just a team where you look and say – okay, they had a lucky four-game run, or, or if they win the national title like you're suggesting, they had a lucky six-game run. We're looking at a team that was really good all season long and then stacked a run on top of that. And so uh, I think it's really tough to to go ahead and, and see them because you want to make them like a top-five team with all of that being there, with all the starters coming back. And yet history tells us, that the most important thing you can have is really high-level talent. And I think that when you're looking at Florida Atlantic and and you're looking specifically at, okay, national champion Florida Atlantic, where do they plug in? I think it might be closer to that 8 to 12 range than than having them top five or or even, you know, one or two, as as the kids say, and maybe not two. Um, so, so, so I think that that's a really long answer, but I do think that that's the challenge with FAU is FAU has been really good all year. And so I, I think there's a, a tendency maybe to underrank March or overrank March runs. But in this case, you know, maybe you'd be accurately ranking FAU, ranking them really high based on the fact that, Hey, these, these guys were this team the entire season. Yeah, they've won 35 games. Um, they've been 
Yeah. Uh, really, really good the, the whole season long. Uh, so the other side of the Final Four, UConn taking on Miami. 4-5 matchup, just like we're used to in the second round. I mean the Final Four. Um, uh, what what sticks out to you about this matchup? How do you kind of see this one going? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's I think it's a more fascinating matchup just because, you know, UConn has some has some NBA athletes on the perimeter, but at the same time, so did Texas. And you look at the way that Miami just kind of closed off Texas down the stretch. And yes, there was a free throw discrepancy, but you look at it and Miami was very deliberately, you know, getting downhill and driving into contact over and over and over again. I think, you know, the key here is going to be Miami's not going to be as big. You know, Omir has done a lot to save them, even with him being a six foot seven post guy, when they've gone up against really good centers, well, UConn will play two of them at once. And so if Miami's going to win this game, you know, it needs to kind of team rebound a little bit. You know, it, it can't be one of those things where they're depending on Omir to grab twenty boards or they lose, and he may anyway. But, you know, I, I think that this is such a fascinating matchup and that you know, UConn has been so, so good of late. And yet, UConn hasn't really had that, you know, sort of brutal shooting night that we see happen a lot in the tournament. And Miami's a team that, that you don't want to do that against because if it winds up being an up-tempo game and Miami is, is putting the score up 75-plus, 80-plus, I think that there's a chance that, that maybe UConn gets in a little bit of trouble there. I know we we both like to before the the tournament starts use different parameters, narrow down the field with past metrics and different things that other past champions have done. Uh, when you look at at this season because of how crazy it has been. Now I know I guess if UConn does win it all, they'll, they'll pass a lot of those tests because of where they do rank in Ken Palm in a lot of different ways, but I guess what are you going to take away from this season for future predictions or is this just kind of a throw it away year? Yeah, and, and as, as crazy as it sounds, I think FAU clicks a lot of those same check marks as well. Uh, I don't remember where they were specifically before the tournament started, but they were right around, uh, I think, top 25. And, and I think UConn 2014, which is kind of the outlier for this team is really bad and shouldn't have won the title, at least, you know, from a, from a metric standpoint. FAU was around that same spot, and I think FAU had an offense that qualified. I think the defense was right around there, too. So it might be uh, – I need for Ken Palm to put out the pre-tournament numbers. I've got, I, I just pulled it up for you. Done. you. I just pulled it up, FAU? yeah. So FAU uh, heading into the tournament. So this was as of Tuesday, so when the first four began. Uh, they were 32nd on offense, 36th on defense. Okay, so they they clicked both boxes. Yep. And do you know what they were overall? They were 26th. Oh, so they so they missed <laughs> by one spot. They missed the the Yukon trigger. But I mean they they clicked a lot of the same boxes and I think that's the not, you know, that this is an FAU show or or anything, right. but I think that's one of the the mis, the misnomers a little bit with FAU is that team was drastically underseeded when you look at, you know, sort of where they were and how good they were and, and how good they were all year. And it's not hard to see why. I mean, it was a strength of schedule thing. But at the same time, you know, FAU checks a lot of those boxes of a national title contender, too. And so 
I, I do think it's not necessarily what you would call a a throwaway, so to speak, but there's definitely a chance if if Miami wins this thing, if San Diego State wins this thing, that we're going to have an extreme outlier one way or another. When you look at the roster construction of the teams, or I guess what makes them what makes them go, what makes these teams good, is there any lessons that that you can gather thematically about what works in this age of college hoops about these four teams that have made it? Yeah, get Miami's NIL package. <laughs> when you when you when you look at that program and how and I have an article coming out on this, just sort of how Miami's team was built, and you look at, at their starters. I mean, Wong was a high school recruit. Um, the uh, Wuga Poplar was a high school recruit. Their other three starters were transferred, and Jordan Miller is is in his second year there, so he arrived before that. But they went into the portal knowing, hey, we have to get another high-level guard after Cam McGusty and Charlie Moore, two transfers themselves, left. And they went and got a first-team All-Big 12 guy. <laughs> like, uh, you know, that's that's about as, as good or as proven a player as you can go out and get. And, you know, it was sort of famous or infamous or however you want to put it in terms of what they shelled out. To, to make that happen. But I got to tell you, you know, we keep an eye on the portal and every once in a while a name posture, you say, Oh, that's, that's one. And Omir was, was that guy for me. He was a guy that, you know, has a, has a great motor. He's, you know, I don't know. Did you go to the Kansas city regional or not? I mean, you could, you see him up close and I mean, the guy can't fit through most door frames. He's so thick. And he also has like a 40-inch vertical. And so when you when he hit, it wasn't so much where I said, man, this this guy should go to Miami. He's a great fit. I said, this guy should go anywhere he wants because he's a, he's a great fit. And for Miami to get Omir, you know, as, as sort of the rugged board work, you know, defense, athletic backline guy along with Nigel Pack, you know, that turned Miami from – a team that was probably going to be, you know, fairly good to a team that had all the pieces to make this run that we're talking about. And so that's not the only takeaway, obviously. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that when you're looking at how these teams are constructed, when you look at, you know, the outlier nature of some of the other teams and things like that, returning experience is big. But if you have the NIL or you have the resources to go out and get a player who is proven at the at the highest possible levels, that that can kind of kind of hit the reset button for you a lot quicker than maybe it would have in years past. Well, that's a nice transition to this next question. Then KU clearly going to be bringing on some transfer portal talent. MJ Rice leaves the program. They've now got five players transferring out. I guess it's just wait and see what happens with with Kyle Cuff if there's going to be a sixth or if it'll stay at five. Uh, but clearly KU is going to be hitting the portal hard here. Is there a transfer out there right now that you think would, you know, whether whether you think they will or won't go to KU, is there a player that you think would maybe be just like a really good fit for the Jayhawks? Yeah, I think the I think that when you look at at a lot of the guys that they're linked with, you're seeing a lot of you know sort of lengthy wings. So you know, guys who are six foot five to, to maybe six foot eight, you know, have have the length where they could maybe play the three or the four at certain times, even the twos that they've looked at, 
you know, they haven't been strictly twos. They've been guys who would be able to defend up a position or two. And they want shooting. You know, when you look at, you're bringing back DeWan Harris, who had a nice year from a percentage standpoint, but is more of a non-shooter than a bad shooter. Just doesn't take a whole lot. When you look at the fact that, you know, Kansas probably wants to get more size on the back line, whether that's Ernest Uday, whether that's them bringing in, Somebody like they've talked to Wyoming's Graham E.K., you know, as more of a traditional center and potentially moving K.J. down to the four. Well, all that's great, but where's the shooting, right? You know, and you you look at potentially somebody like El Marco Jackson, you know, sliding into the lineup and shooting isn't necessarily his strength. You know, he's he's gotten a lot. Uh, he, he's improved a lot at it, you know, according to our guys who saw him at McDonald's have kind of seen him all year. But at the same time, I think that when you look at the transfer portal and what Kansas is looking for, they're looking for players who can defend multiple positions, and they're looking at guys who can knock down shots because shooting is going to be you know, maybe the swing thing for next year's team. When you look across the Big 12, uh, I'm sure it's hard right now predicting all this with who's going, who's staying, and everything, but who do you kind of vision being in that upper echelon for the top tier of title contenders next season? It sounds weird to say because it's going to be the first year, but Houston, you know, Houston's a team that that could bring back three starters from this year's team. And when you look at some of the guys that that they're going to target in the portal, they've got some potential backups already on roster. And, And by backups, I mean guys who could move into the starting lineup from last year's team. They've got some of those guys on roster, but they're also out there hitting up the portal and they're one or two pieces away from, from being up there. I, I don't think it's a huge spoiler to tell people that, you know, barring a a disaster between now and when we put out our way too early rankings, like Houston's going to be a top five team and they're going to be the, the top ranked team in the big 12. I think Texas is another one that's really interesting, especially when you're looking at what's going to happen with Dylan DeSue, you know, is, is he somebody that, that decides to come back? Obviously, he was very hot at the end of the season and then got hurt. He can come back, and if he does, you know, he he really makes them quite a bit different. You know, Holland, you saw at the McDonald's game, was really, really good. They're, they're bringing back Tyrese Hunter, Arterio Morris, you know, Dylan Mitchell. They're also looking in the portal potentially for, for a lead guard to hop in to – to Marcus Carr's spot, and so I think they're there. The the interesting one, you know, obviously you you have Kansas in that discussion as well. The interesting one for me that I'm tracking is, is Baylor. You know, you saw the LJ Cryer announcement that he is going to the NBA draft, re- keeping his eligibility. There's a question there, I think, whether or not he kind of opens himself up for suitors in the transfer portal because I don't think that his stock is necessarily going to be that high in this year's NBA draft. And so maybe he goes test the waters and, and maybe he's a, he's a Matt Meyer situation like we saw last year where he left, kept his eligibility open, and then wound up transferring to Illinois. And so if Cryer comes back with some of the pieces that they have and could return there, I think Baylor could be kind of a, a half step down or so from some of those other teams, but also have enough upside to where, hey, if everything clicks the right way, maybe Baylor is with that group. And then 
TCU potentially is another one that depending on decisions and everything, you know, I realize I just named five teams, but that's the big 12, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's one of those, uh, one of those conferences this year, even where you just didn't see much separation between the top teams. And so those are the ones that are kind of popping out at me right now. He is Kevin Flaherty. You can check out all his work with 24 seven sports. Kevin, appreciate the time as always. Enjoy the final four this week. All right, thanks a lot, guys. All right, that's Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 Sports. You might be able to catch him at a uh, upcoming Royals game, maybe. Checking out Chef J Barbecue over there as well. Uh, 24-7 Sports, check out all his work, including that way-too-early top 25 that'll come out soon, and the article he talked about as well, talking about the uh, Miami roster construction. He is Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. Two hours down, one to go. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Five o'clock hour here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson here on KLWN. Uh, we will get to KU women's basketball coverage starting here at 6.15 for pregame tip-off at 6.30. You can go over to Allen Fieldhouse to watch the game, and uh, we'll get into a preview of that here in just a second. MJ Rice, uh, in case you missed it, the news of the day here around the program is transferring Away from KU. So five players transferring now from the program. Yeah, one of the more disappointing ones for a guy who you thought uh, would ha- maybe have an expanded role or have a chance for an expanded role next season. Uh, somebody who people were hoping would have an expanded role this season, but it just one way or another didn't quite work out. He was dealing with some injuries early in the season, and then he just didn't really crack the rotation later in the season. But certainly he was the guy that had the highest ceiling, had the highest upside, had the most potential of the other guys that have already left the program as well. So that's the one that I think maybe stings a little bit the most out of it. But, you know, he's a really talented guy. He's an incredible athlete. And uh, hopefully he can have a chance to showcase that wherever he goes. And from the Kansas perspective, basically it just puts more pressure on you to go out and find some guys in the portal that can make a big impact. You know, I, I think – you kind of alluded to it when we talked about this at the top of the show, but MJ Rice maybe might have had a higher upside or a higher potential, possibly you know later next season or even if he stayed another for another season further down in his career than a guy you might bring in, in the portal. But also a guy you might bring in the portal might have the chance to be a much more stable contributor uh, than MJ Rice, who is somebody that you were base if he was going to stay in the program, you were going to be relying on him certainly taking a step up, whereas now if you can go out and, and get a guy that you think is a bit more proven as, as a scorer, as a, just an all-around player that you can utilize more of, then I think from the Kansas perspective you're probably okay with that and you're probably okay with seeing MJ Rice go and, and have a chance to, to perform it at, at somewhere else. So that's really the big takeaway for me. But again, it, I just keep circling back to this point of the more guys that you see leave the program for KU, the more pressure it puts on KU to really, really nail their transfer portal gets and also the more pressure it puts on some of those incoming freshman guys to maybe perform at a higher level. Yeah. And you don't have to nail every single one. Like we saw a couple of years ago, KU brought in four transfers. Cam Martin ended up redshirting. Joe Yesifu didn't play a ton. Yeah. Jalen Coleman lands was your eighth man. Two but, of them were major impact guys. Yeah. And then Remy Martin was a kind of a key impact. Like you don't win the title without Remy I don't Martin. Know. I feel like with this year, you, you need to be hitting on it. If let's say you bring in four guys again, like you just alluded to, three of them need to be pretty high impact guys. I think. I don't think you can afford to have it 
be less than two or three guys. I think you need at least two um, for this year. But specifically, one has to be good enough to be like a key starter for you. At the yes. very least, one. May, I would argue maybe two at this point. Maybe. I, I think it depends, right? I mean, if, if Again, Dewan it, Harris... Yeah, it depends on what kind of lineup you want to roll out. Yeah, right? If Dewan Harris, if Marco Jackson ends up being good and you have Dewan next to Marco, and then KJ moves to the four and Uday breaks out and he's at the five, yeah. then you just need one starter and then you would just need one other transfer to be a, a sixth, seventh, eighth guy for you, right? That you can get away with it that way. But you're right. If, if you have two transfers who come in and are really good and if you have a third who's coming off the bench, uh, then it's a slam dunk. Then it's a home run of how good your team could possibly be next season. Yes. Yes, and I think you. I think if you're Kansas and you are dreaming of getting a national title, that's probably what you need. Yeah, and I think that this is what it's going to basically be like here as, as long as the current rules do stand. Now, I'll be interested to see how things change over the course of college basketball as soon as the fifth-year players, the guys, basically the guys with COVID year, are able to kind of weed themselves out. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, the COVID year was the 2020 to 21 season, right? Yeah. So that means if, if you were a true freshman that season, then you would have been a junior this year, but technically a, a third-year sophomore, right? So that means we basically have two more years before that gets weeded out. Maybe there will be certain guys who redshirted one year, and then I guess technically you could have like three years before that's gone. So there is a small window where that will continue to be the case, and that – um, there will just be more players in college basketball, more players in the transfer portal because of that extra classification of players that I do think it'll be a little bit different now than when that does go. But still, I do think to a certain sense, this will be the way that things are just done from here on if you are a KU. If you're not cutting it, you're not performing well, this is KU basketball. This is high-level basketball. They're going to do everything in their part to be a win-now team each and every year. And it works both ways. Certain kids are going to transfer out to want more playing time. Kansas is going to work out every year to try to get the best roster possible for that specific year. And it does kind of suck from a standpoint of you're used to seeing the guys grow up in front of your eyes. That's just not what it's become anymore. And, and you might still get some of that. I mean, you Yeah, you will. You have you your Dewan's, Dewan's, you have your KJ's. Yeah. You'll get your program players. But it's going to be the a player, two players, three players on a given roster every year that maybe have stuck around the program for for two, three, four years. It's not going to be the entirety of the roster that, yeah, this guy stuck around and he was a bench player for two years and then he was a a rotation player for a year and he had a redshirt year too and now his sixth year or his fifth year, he's maybe a starter for you. Like Those are going to be very, very rare. It's going to have to be the guys that are like the Mitch Lightfoot where it's like, Think about you know, it. You've only had really one guy yeah. like that in the last couple of years. Like they're just, exactly. They're just happy in that role. You don't have a lot of guys that are kind of of that ilk. So um, get used to it because this is kind of how it's going to be. And Yeah, I think it's safe to say Mitch Lightfoot was a once in a, yeah, it was. <laughs> a generation type guy. I mean, you fast forward another year from now, and when we're in next offseason, guess what? We're probably going to start all over again because there's probably going to be a freshman in the class of the four guys coming in, maybe two guys who are unhappy with their playing time or it didn't work out for them, and they transfer out. And I don't know, maybe maybe it's more so in cycles of two. Like maybe that's what this past year showed us. Because typically guys are gonna come back for a year past the freshman year to see if they can make that jump and, and work it. So maybe it does work in cycles of two years. But it's it's gonna be something that, that you for sure uh, have to get used to, I guess, moving forward. 
All right, the KU women's basketball team takes on the Washington Huskies in the Fab Four of the women's NIT tonight. Pre-game going to start at 6.15. Tip-off will be at 6.30. Kansas at this point is is the betting favorite to win the WNIT. Um, I don't have odds in front of me of who the, the, the favorite actually is in terms of plus-minus, but there actually are odds. Like, I'm looking at DraftKings right now on the WNIT games tonight. And the other end of the bracket, Bowling Green is playing Columbia Kansas is playing Washington tonight. Kansas is eight-point favorites against Washington. Over-under is only 125.5, by the way, so that's kind of saying, like, <laughs> ugly game, like low scoring and stuff. Well, but, that's the type of game that Washington likes to play. Exactly, they're exactly. Very, they're not a very fast team. But basically, Kansas is the favorite at this point to win the WNIT. They're hosting tonight. I would imagine if they win, they'll probably do everything in their power to to bid through and, and get the hosting job on Saturday as well. Um, but this is probably the one that, you know, if you win this, you're feeling even better about Saturday. Yeah. Yeah, and it feels like this Kansas team is playing their best basketball right now, right? And I think uh, it, you can look at that two ways. Like, one, it's great. You know, you're, you're seeing a team really come together in postseason play and perform at a high level and getting rewarded for that, right? Like, potentially going on and, and winning the, the WNIT. On the flip side of that, you it, it, you might feel a little bit frustrated by it because you're, you're basically one game away from almost clinching an NCAA tournament berth from what we've heard from different people. We had Jill Dostrick Hall come on the show and say that with with that game against TCU in the Big 12 tournament, you win that game, maybe you're in the NCAA tournament, and maybe you were able to make a little bit of a deeper NCAA tournament run. Uh, but because of that, you ultimately go to the WNIT. But still, it's got to it's gotta be a good sign. It's got to feel good for this team, for these players to have a chance to come together and perform well in postseason play because this was a team that after last season, there were some definitely some higher expectations for Kansas coming into this season. And, and while... Maybe it didn't pan out exactly how they were hoping. Uh, a win in the WNIT championship would probably feel pretty good for them to, to cap off their season on a positive note and then look look toward kind of getting back to where you wanted to be this season in the next season uh, if you can build upon a, a run like this. And honestly, on the men's side, we do see it happen a lot where teams win the NIT and then they go on and have a great season the yep. next year. The, the two teams in the title game last year were Xavier and Texas A&M, who A&M ended up being probably an underseated 17. Xavier made the Sweet 16. Yep. We had Brandon Schneider on the other day, and he talked about the Arizona team in the women's game from a couple years ago that won the NIT, and the very next year they played for the national title. So, yeah, those extra practices, that, that extra time of development. Yeah, yeah, just the extra games. The yeah. launching pad that this can lead to in the offseason is, is so incredibly important. Now, Washington is a team who's playing their best ball right now, too. They came in at 15-14. and 14. And they've kind of found their stride. They've won, obviously, four games to move to 19 and 14 on the year. It's a team that they're not very offensive. This is uh, an offense that certainly has struggled. Um, their leading scorer, Deliah Daniels, only gets 11.5 points per game. Nobody else is in double figures for them. It's kind of, kind of balanced scoring, and they don't get a ton of it, 61.5 points per game. So the offense has struggled. But over the last four games during the women's NIT, that's part of where they found their stride, that they've they've scored more than their season average in every game. Now, I know that's kind of a low bar to clear when you're averaging 61.5 points per game, but um, they beat Kansas State as part of this run, and that's a Kansas State team that split the series with KU. So this is a dangerous team. Yeah, well, and look at the scoring of their opponents. Like you talked yeah. about their offense struggling. Well, they had, the most amount of points they've given up on this run is 59, and they've given up 59 48, 56, and 54. So when you're averaging 61, but you're only but you're giving up 59 or less, 
You're going to win some games. Yeah, and that's kind of where, where this comes down to. The last 10 opponents for Washington have scored uh, under 70 points. They're a really good rebounding team. The defense leads the way. They'll play at a slower tempo to kind of put a vice grip on you and add to that part of things with their defense. It's just about how KU can execute on the offensive end of the floor. Yeah, uh, We've seen some games so uh, this season that, you know, if, if Kansas has been a little frustrated on the offensive end and if they have gotten to that point of frustration, uh, maybe it's it's caused some issues. And I think back to their their last loss, which was the TCU loss in the Big 12 tournament. That was, that was kind the case. Of, that was kind of what yeah. happened. Yeah, it was a, it was a low-scoring, close game where they just kind of got flustered, right? Yeah, the game was in the 50s. Tyana yeah. Jackson uh, really struggled from the floor. You saw visible frustrations. Kansas wasn't hitting shots from the outside. And you lost to a team that you've been better than over the course of a season. Um, can you develop enough of the offense against a good defense in this game? I do think there is a case that even if you know Kansas does struggle offensively because the Washington offense isn't great, that uh, when you look at it, Tyana Jackson limiting opponents on the inside with her defense, the KU still could be fine and win kind of an ugly game. But their best yeah. situation to avoid even that ugly win and to win kind of more in line with what the point spread is predicting at an eight-point game is for them to... You know, have Holly Kerskeeter going from the outside. She's been kind of uh, hot and cold so far this season, shooting the ball from the outside. And having both Sakai Franklin and Tyana Jackson, your two All-Big 12 first-team players, stepping up. Because this is, this is you know, the type of game where if if you're the star player on a team, if you're one of the best players in the conference, go show it. Yeah. And listen, this even though this isn't the NCAA tournament, this is still postseason high-intensity, high-level basketball, right? So you still want to go out and, and perform well. And, and keep your season alive, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you're losing your season's over. So you want to, you still want to strive to continue to, to, to play well and, and reach it, right? And so, yeah, it's it's not maybe necessarily the tournament you wanted to be in at this stage if you're Kansas, but it's still a great opportunity to, like you were alluding to, continue to build on that. And, and as we said, you've seen teams go through the NIT, both on the men's and women's side, and have a lot of success afterwards. And for Kansas, that could be what just what they need, right? A chance to, to make a postseason run, to, to have an opportunity to, to win a win a postseason title in the WNIT and then use that to springboard them into the, into the future because this is a team that certainly has a lot of talent you know multiple All Big Twelve players right and uh, if they can they can just put it together consistently this is a team that in the future could certainly be contending for higher seeds in the NCAA tournament which I know is where they were kind of hoping they would be this season but now you have a chance to even though it was maybe a bit of a disappointment, still end on a really strong, positive note and use that to go even further next season. Yeah, and so we've seen Tyana Jackson, who can be back for next year, have really good games. She just had like 22-11 and 11 against Arkansas. Um, well, that we've sucks, seen, Arkansas. <laughs> we've seen Zakiya Franklin kind of go off in these games. She can be back for next year. But at the same point in time, as, as much as this can be a springboard for next year, this has got to be cool for for some of the, like, like Holly Kerskeeter getting to extend out her career and getting to play extra home games. like A lot of times you have senior night, and then it's like, well, will I ever play in this historic venue with Allen Fieldhouse ever again? And to see what Holly Kerskeeter has been able to do in this tournament where she did have kind of, I mean, she was an all-Big 12 first-team performer, not this year, but the season before, came into this year dealing with some injuries and things that, that didn't make it a um, as much of a senior season as maybe she would expect. And had a lot of hot and cold shooting nights. Like, that's what she's known for, being a good shooter. But the games that she's played in the the WNIT so far have been really good. She had 14 points against Western Kentucky, hit four threes. She had two threes and, and 12 points against Missouri. She hit uh, 
two threes or 14 points. That was her biggest struggle. That one was a little bit more on the cold end against Nebraska. And then she was on fire. She could not miss against Arkansas. 25 points. goes three of six from three, six of 12 from the floor. So just having her career kind of extend out as a, a great KU women's basketball player. And we'll see if she can cap it off tonight. Again, that game against Washington with pregame at 6.15, tip-off at 6.30 here on KLWN. You can also go out to the game over at Allen Fieldhouse. With Nick Springer, I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chuck Sports Talk on KLWN, KLWN.com, and the KLWN app. We'll have some uh, KU football audio with Jordan Peterson, the defensive backs coach, next here on KLWN and RCST. Depend on it. Thanks for listening to the Best of RCST podcast. And a reminder, you can catch our show Monday through Friday from 3 to 6 live on KLWN in Lawrence, 101.7 FM, 1320 AM, or anywhere you're online at klwn.com or the KLWN app. Thanks for listening.